What we just heard read from 1 Chronicles 16 in verse 34, it says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Is He good? Do you believe that He's good, a good God? Most of us in this room, of course, believe that to be the case. But in the face of catastrophe, in the face of massive injustice, it's understandable why the question is asked, isn't it? Is God good? I don't think this is an obscure question that only God-haters ask. It's, it's a question that will come to most people's minds in the face of a trial if it's severe enough. If you've never asked that question, is God good, maybe it's because you haven't endured an intense enough trial. If one concludes that God is not good, where does that lead? Is it possible to walk with God, to commune with the Lord, if we doubt His goodness? I think that if it is the case that our thinking, our mindset becomes this, that He is not good, I think it leads to inevitable unbelief. Blasphemous thoughts of God about His character, things like He is evil, He is vindictive, He's unconcerned, He's unfair, those kind of things are certain to come and go through the vicissitudes of life. Uh, but if they find a resting place in our soul, I think they can neutralize and even shipwreck our spiritual lives. This morning, as we continue our study of the book of James, I want to encourage you to turn with me, if you would, to James chapter 1, as I read for you verses 16 through 18. In these few short verses... I think we'll hear some important news from James concerning the questions I'm asking. James chapter 1 verses 16 through 18 says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So today what I want to tell you is why it is important to believe that God is good and to encourage you to live your daily life as though that is your conviction. Because what you think about God impacts how you live your life from day to day. And so I want to convince you of what James has said to us this morning. So if we put our ourselves in the shoes of the original recipients of the letter of James, I think we would understand why James would include your view of the goodness of God as a test of faith. They, they were, the recipients of this letter, being persecuted severely. They, they may have questioned things like God's goodness. How is it possible that God can be good? I've just lost my job. I've lost my family. I've lost my home because I'm a Christian. And God is good? You can see why they would ask the question. The age-old question, how can God be good if the world is so bad, is a legitimate one. How can God be good if there are starving children, innocents being murdered, good people getting cancer? 
Of course, we know that there is a story within every catastrophe that will tug at our hearts and bring up questions about God's goodness. We've heard a few recently from the hurricane that hit Florida. We can't dismiss these questions with the typical evangelical answer that says, God has brought judgment. Somehow they deserve it. Um, these questions cannot be dismissed. We realize that if we just think about it for a moment, some people are more guilty than others inside and outside of any catastrophe. These questions need serious consideration. But James's first response to these kinds of questions is recorded in verse 16. He says, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Why does he say that? He, say that? he says that because it's easy to be deceived concerning this issue. It's easy to be misled by philosophers of the day, by people who have gone through hardship beyond what we will ever to be convinced by them that God maybe isn't so good. But James says, not only is God not evil, verse 13, but he is exceedingly good, verse 17. We have entered a new section this morning in the book of James, and it's identified, of course, as I mentioned to you in our first sermon on this book, it's identified with the words, my beloved brothers. Whenever, whenever you come across those words in the book of James, it identifies a new section. My beloved brothers, don't be deceived. It's a command. And so here we are in a new section, and the book is made up of tests of authentic faith. And so if this book is a series of tests of authentic faith, then what is our current section's test? And the section is 16 through 18. And here it is. Here is the test of faith. What is, your, what is your view of God? What do you really think about God's character? The world has many divergent views of God, things like he's impersonal, impersonal and impossible to get to know, that he's a cosmic killjoy, he's a cosmic Santa Claus, an angry despot, a spineless cosmic Mr. Rogers of sorts, a vindictive being. All these things find their place in our society, don't they, in the view of God? So how important is it that we have an accurate view of God? James is concerned that the true believer isn't deceived about God's character. Is God good? This is the question to which your answer, James believes, will reveal the authenticity of your faith. So be careful how you answer the question. If you believe God is bad or does evil, then James would ask you to examine your faith to see if it, in fact, is real. God's Spirit, who lives within every true believer, would never believe, would ever lead a believer and their beliefs or opinions about God towards a faulty view of himself. So if your views of God are different from what the Scriptures reveal about him, then be alerted, James says. And, of course, we need to make room for what is in bounds and out of bounds when it comes to our views of God. I'm not talking about orthodoxy versus unorthodoxy. Those are thoughts for another day. Now we're talking simply about the character of God. Is He good or isn't He? Let's, let's look at how James walks us through this conversation. 
Notice in verse 17 he talks about the giver. The giver being God, of course. According to verse 17, James says that God is the giver of good gifts. He, he does not bring things that are bad for us into our lives. A thing like temptation to sin cannot come from God because he's a good God. Jesus said in Matthew 7 that the Father only gives good things to his children. So you might be thinking, if you're a thinking person, well, what about cancer diagnosis? A lost job, a lost friend, the death of a brother, a spouse. You see, James wants us to think clearly about these things. Um, and by the way, James's thoughts are not isolated. There's quite a bit of crossover in this uh, conversation in the New Testament and old. But why must the things we receive in this life be good? James's answer would be the gifts must be good because the giver is good. Here's a literal translation of verse 17. All good giving and every perfect gift is from above. All good giving and perfect gift is from above. This emphasizes that the action of giving is good and that God's gifts are perfect. This means that God's giving is intrinsically and comprehensively good because they flow out of His good character. The reason His gifts are good is because He is good, is what James is saying. So what are we to think when we encounter bad things? What do we think about serious illness or a heinous act perpetrated against an innocent person? How are we to think about the Christian in Nazi death camps or the toddler dying of cancer? How do you think about those things? The question of evil is a very problematic thing in our world and has been a major source of unbelief throughout the history of man. It seems that the longer that we live on this planet, the more questions arise about the problem of evil because there's so much. I think I need to briefly give you my view on these things, but hopefully quickly move on to the emphasis of the text in front of us today. Martin Luther, in his book, The Bondage of the Will, addressed God's oversight of evil in the world. He said this, <clears throat> When God works in and by evil men, evil deeds result. Yet God, though He does evil by means of evil men, cannot act evilly Himself, for He is good and cannot do evil. But He uses evil instruments which cannot escape the impulse and movement of his power. Now, Luther's thoughts can be helpful and also <laughs> concerning, uh, if we think about them a little bit. But I think Luther would agree if we were to say this, at times God accomplishes his will through the free actions of evil men. God is sovereign somehow over the free actions of evil men and women. I know that's really hard to understand. One example that is helpful to us in understanding this seemingly contradict, contradictory idea is the story of Joseph in Genesis. You remember that story? He was sold into slavery by his evil brothers. If you remember when he was 17, he had 10 older brothers and they were evil and they wanted to take it out on Joseph and so they sold him into slavery. That's a fairly evil deed, don't you think? But when we get to Genesis chapter 50, which is 20 years later after Joseph had risen to a position of power and influence in the land of Egypt, 
He says this to his brothers who were dependent upon him for mercy. He says this to the very men who evilly sold him into slavery. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So, God used Joseph's evil brothers to accomplish his will, which was to get Joseph to Egypt to save the world from famine. This is important story. Because of God's good purposes for the use of evil and no evil intent in himself, God is free from the accusation of evil even when he uses evil men to accomplish his will. We think we see the same kind of thing in the book of Acts when Peter's preaching. Uh, in his first sermon on the day of Pentecost, he said this in verse 23, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God planned that Jesus would die. There's been a lot of talk about this in theological circles. And the conclusions are, God killed Jesus, not the Jews. He used the Jews, but God orchestrated the events. The, the, probably the most evil event in human history, Peter said, God was responsible for. Let me finish the verse. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter said that the evil of putting Jesus to death was the will of God, but he used evil men to accomplish his will by exercising their free will. Was anybody forcing the hand of those Pharisees when they put Jesus to death? No. God can and does ordain the use of evil to bring about his good purposes. And I know this is not easy to comprehend. Now, I don't know that James had this whole argument in mind when he wrote verses 13 through 18, but James's thoughts have been used uh, for a long time uh, to discuss this very problem that we face as Christians, the problem of evil. According to James, God is not evil and cannot do evil, will not tempt to evil. He is only good and only gives good gifts. That's James's conclusion. He reveals, that is, James reveals the nature of God in verse 17. Sin and evil do not come from God, but good gifts do. Everything God does reflects his character. Everything. If God is the father of lights, which James says he is, which means, by the way, he created and maintains the universe's bodies of light, stars and sun, etc., then he is able to give us, that is, God is able to give us what we need in our lives and keep our lives in order as he does the universe. Our lives are substantially less complicated than the operation of the universe, even though we may disagree. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, Paul gives us a little more insight into this issue. Paul said that God's invisible qualities, like eternal power and divine nature, are clearly seen by what has been created. So by observing the universe, we can recognize God's goodness. 
If you'll just take the time to examine the universe, go out at night and look at the stars and the moon and the planets that we see with our naked eye, and by observing those things carefully, Paul said, you'll be able to observe God's goodness. And you think, how's that possible? How do we know God's good by looking at the stars? Here's why. They work. They actually work. They do exactly what God has designed them to do. God in his goodness created something that works. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, the Apostle John says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God is only good. He is not evil at all. There's not a tinge of badness in God. It seems all the apostles agree. It seems that Jesus agrees with this. This God of goodness never changes. Back to verse 17, as does our perception of light. It says the sun rises and casts shadows in one direction and sets and casts shadows in the opposite direction. These are varying shadows and things in shadows are hard to see, hard to understand. Not so with God. He's a God of light, a God of clarity, a God of understanding. His goodness is never in question. Oh, we may question it, but it's because of our faulty perception, not because of his questionable goodness. Look at verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. This, this word coming down is actually is two words in English. One word in the original language, it is a present active participle, which means that it is an unending flood of goodness flowing down on us from the presence of God. It is a flood of goodness from God that we experience day in and day out. The giver is good, James' conclusion. And he proves his goodness by the gifts that he gives. So what good things does God give? Well, let's just stay here within chapter 1 of James. What do we learn that what do we learn about God's goodness from what He's given? It says in verse 2 that He's given us trials. You say, how does that prove God's goodness? I'd rather not have trials. Well, just because you'd rather not have something doesn't mean it's not good. For example, discipline. You don't like discipline. Here's another one: the common cold. We do everything we can to avoid it, but it's actually good for us, believe it or not. There's things called diseases that come to people who haven't had colds. Colds actually help us. It's a gift from God. So God gives trials. And, and sometimes God gives us trials and leads us into affliction in order to help us refocus our gaze on Him. If you remember in Psalm 119, verse 67, the, the psalmist said, I was going my own way until you afflicted me. Then I got my act together and realized what I was doing. So God uses affliction to help you focus. God uses trials to prune us also, Jesus said in John 15, so that we'll be more fruitful. He, he orders trials in our lives to, to bless others around us, believe it or not. And in the mystery of his providence, he, he sometimes simply wants to show us personally his graciousness and glory and love that we can only see 
from a place of trial and hardship, like Job, for example. He would have never known what he knew about God at the end of the book if he hadn't gone through what he did at the beginning of the book. This is how it is with you and I. In every situation, God is working, as the great pastor Samuel Rutherford used to say, to polish our graces. How are you going to become more like Christ? Through the polishing work of trial is how we become more like Jesus. So God gives trials, we can see here in chapter 1, verse 2. He gives wisdom, it says in verse 5. Wisdom for what? Wisdom to navigate trials. Give us insight in how to walk through these difficult times. That's something I need, as do you. God gives wisdom. He's, he's good because he gives wisdom for trial. He gives escape from temptation that we learned about last week. It says he gives every good and perfect gift. And what are some of these things that we know of in Scripture? The Spirit of God has been given to us to help us through temptation. The Word of God has been given to us to strengthen us for temptation. The church has been given to us to walk with us through temptation. God has given us escape from temptation. This is a good gift. All these from this first chapter of James. And now we come to verse 18. So turn with me to 18. Make sure you're looking at verse 18. And I'm going to spend the rest of our time talking about, about verse 18. It is an awesome verse. Here, the gift given is spiritual life. How's that for a good gift? How about life? itself. <laughs> Every good and perfect gift, all these gifts that I've just mentioned um, flow out of this infinite source of goodness. God loves us. His character is good. In this verse, verse 18, James just comes out and says what it means to be converted. What, it, what, it, what happens when we come to Christ in this compact verse, verse 18, we have a lot of doctrine. I won't be able to cover it all this morning, but I'm going to hit the high points. Verse 18. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. My goodness. Listen, friends. If, if James is a book about the tests of authentic faith and faith is discovered through the gospel, then it would be nice to know the basic elements of the gospel. And verse 18 tells us what they are. You want to know what the gospel is? You know how things work? You want to know how you're saved? James 1.18 tells us. If God's goodness is seen anywhere, it is primarily seen in the saving of people. I mean, it's wonderful to have fresh air and vision and health. What great gifts are those? But to have our souls saved from eternal damnation by a loving and good God is amazing. Amen. He actually grants forgiveness of sin. He pardons rebellion. He gives spiritual life where there is only death and darkness. It says 
Of his own will he brought us forth. This is a reference to receiving spiritual, eternal life. Why do we need this life mentioned here in verse 18? It's because without it we remain spiritually dead in our sins, under God's wrath and judgment. That's why we need it. You remember Ephesians 2, what Paul said there? And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He didn't say you were sleeping. He didn't say you were in a coma. He said you were dead. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We need God to intervene because dead people can't do anything. You may be thinking to yourself, well, wait a minute. I prayed to receive Christ. I believed. I saw my need for forgiveness. I willingly came to Jesus. And I would say that is all true. But why did you do those things? Let me share with you one of the basic elements of verse 18. Of his own will he brought us forth. John chapter 1 the gospel of belief. What it means to believe is found in the gospel of John. And in the very first chapter, John says in verse 12 and 13, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You say, there you go, Pastor John. To all who receive him, to all who believe, I did that. Well, let's read verse 13. That was verse 12. All right. Verse 13 says this. He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. That's your flesh and mine, your mind. You were born again not by your own will, not by the will of man. You can't explain someone into salvation, but by what? God. Back to verse 18 of James 1. Of his own will he brought you forth. Not of his will and yours. Of his will, period, he brought you forth. And that is good news, friends. If it were left up to us, it would never happen. Because why? We are dead in sin. And dead people can't do anything. We remain in sin forever unless God's will came forth and brought us life. That's the only way it can happen. Do you remember what Jesus said in John 6, 44? No one comes to me unless the Father draws him. No child has ever been born into the world by its own will or plan. You did not determine your physical conception. You didn't work with your mother on the gestation process. <laughs> you didn't plan with mom and dad and the doctor when you would be born. It is the same in the spiritual world. We are merely passive recipients of the will of our spiritual parent being God. Only God does it. We are God's people because of a total act of God's grace rooted in God's unprompted goodness. He brought us forth. 
1 Corinthians 1.30, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus. Titus chapter 3 verse 5, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians 2. Because of his great mercy he saved us. <laughs> How does God do this? Does he just wave some kind of spiritual magic wand over our heads and poof, we're saved. No, that's not how it works. Let's go back to James 1.18. James tells us how it works. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. What is that? <laughs> Through the instrument of the word of God, we encounter our sin and God's holiness and something happens in that process that reveals our need, that exposes the goodness of God in the gospel and draws us to himself. God uses his word to spark spiritual life in our hearts and causes regeneration to take place. James says that being brought forth is a result of the ear hearing the word of God. This is what Paul said to the Roman church in chapter 10, verse 17. So faith comes from hearing, faith, saving faith, comes from hearing the word of Christ. Back to James 1.18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. The reason that, or the, the way that God saves you, the way that God transforms your life and gives you new life is through being exposed to the word of God. You cannot be saved otherwise. I can't give you my testimony enough times for you to be saved. Our testimonies are wonderful, but they're not salvific. What saves people is opening the Word and reading it to them. Is bringing it to church and having it preached at them. Is giving them a copy of the Gospel of John and asking them to read it. This is what saves people. This is what sparks faith in the life of anyone who comes to Christ. Ephesians 2.1 tells us that we were dead and unresponsive in our sins. There was no spiritual pulse whatsoever, but because of God's great mercy and goodness, His Word brings forth life. This is why inviting your friends to church is so critical. Being brought forth isn't just putting on a new suit or changing an old habit. No, it's actually being given a whole new life. It's a new recreation. Ephesians 4.24, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Putting on that new self that's been created, made new by God in the likeness of himself, in true righteousness and holiness. It's a divine internal activity. God brought us forth. God made us alive from spiritual death to spiritual life. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. It doesn't say he gets a new suit. He's a new creation. The old has passed away, in fact. The new has come. When Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, remember that? In John 3, 
Jesus explained this being brought forth to Nicodemus by telling him it was like being born again, like being born from above. He needed God to do the work because Nicodemus, you can't do it. Only the Spirit of God can do that. What was Jesus saying? What was Paul saying? What is James saying here? All these agree that, that the new birth is essential and it is from God alone. Without it, there's no spiritual life. God must sovereignly come to the individual sinner and by His grace remove that heart, hard heart, a sinful heart, and give that sinner a new heart that's receptive to God, receptive to His Word. If that has never happened, then all these tests of authentic faith in the book of James will reveal a spiritually dead heart, not an alive one, one that believes in God and believes that He's good. Verse 18 tells us that being an authentic Christian, first of all, is being brought forth by God's will through the Word of God. Have you ever been prompted by something that you've heard to run to Jesus for help? When, you, when you're sitting in the church service and you hear someone preach something and it prompts you to run to the Savior, you know what that is? That's God's Spirit using His Word to light that little fire in your soul. So, respond to it. <laughs> Run to Jesus for help. Lay your sins at His feet and plead His forgiveness. And then you will be brought forth. Like all those who know God. Theologian Louis Burkhoff defined regeneration like this. Regeneration, that is becoming new, <clears throat> is that act of God by which the principle of new life is implanted in man and the governing disposition of his soul is made holy. What this means is total transformation. It's not just a new suit. It's a whole new energy. It's a whole new life. And it results in what? Believing that God is good. It results in being joyful in trial. It results in responding positively, obediently to the Word, which we'll get to in a couple weeks. Peter says it results in partaking in the divine nature. Now, I want you to keep in mind as we think through being brought forth that it's not a process that I'm talking about. It's an event. You know, some people I've talked to them, are you a believer? Are you a Christian? Well, I'm trying to be. Wrong answer. It's like asking a woman if she's pregnant. Well, I, are you or aren't you? Are you saved or aren't you saved? It's, it's not a process. It's an event that takes place in the life of a converted person. You may, never, you may not perceive it initially. That's why we think it might be a process. But it is... It is something that takes place in the life of an individual at a point in time that's made manifest throughout the growth in Christ-likeness. So now let's, let's look at the response to all of this. <clears throat> On November 4th, Sunday, we're going to get into the next section here, 
starting in verse 19, uh, which is the next test of authenticity. In the next session, we're going to clearly see what an appropriate response to God's gracious work of salvation should be in our lives. But here's a hint, verse 22, be doers of the Word. There's a little teaser. On November 4th, we'll, we'll uh, un unpack that completely. But today, by way of wrap-up, what is the appropriate response to such a loving and giving and good God as seen in verse 18? James says, look at the verse, that we are to be a kind of first fruits. What in the world is that? Well, living in Yakima, we should have an advantage over the rest when it comes to understanding the fruit industry metaphors, don't you think? We should have an advantage here. A first fruit is that fruit that comes off the tree first. It's the best fruit of the harvest. That's what a first fruit is. You remember in the Old Testament, God required that His people gave Him the first fruits of their harvest. They were required to give God the first and the best of what their land produced as a demonstration of their love, their thankfulness uh, to God for all of His goodness towards them. So what does James mean when he says that we are the first fruits of God's creation? How is this a response to being brought forth in God's goodness? Well, there's two things that need to be said, and the first is less important. So if you're going to doze off, now's the time to do it. <laughs> the second thing, though, you need to wake back up. But the first thing is this. Our current environment and human experience within this environment, on this planet, is not the apex of God's plan for human history. As such, we should be careful with the environment that God has given us to manage, um, but it has never been intended to last forever. God, God didn't create this planet to last forever. There is an uh, end of it planned by God. This doesn't mean that we're free to abuse what He's given us, but at the same time, we shouldn't worship the environment either. And this isn't a political statement, this is just a biblical statement. We should use the environment for our enjoyment and our need and leave, it, leave the end of it when it runs out up to God. Secondly, here's where you wake up. This is the most important point of the two that I'm making. The ultimate purpose of our existence is yet to be experienced. It's still future. We have hints of it, what it will be, all over the Bible, but our current experience is just a vague and blurry picture of what God has planned for those who love Him. One day, our present physical world and universe will be no more, and God will create a new and more beautiful environment where perfection is everywhere. There will be no more tears, no more bad weather, no more earthquakes, no more tsunamis or forest fires. There will be no more sickness or disease. There will be no more politics or rivalries of any kind. There will be only perfection and harmony at every single level. That is what is yet to come. Now, being brought forth into new spiritual life from God is designed by God to demonstrate to everyone what this new world, this new creation, will one day look like. We are the first fruits of that beautiful and glorious coming day. 
You and me. Those of us who are in Christ. Our new life in Christ is a hint of the world that is to come. We are the first fruits of this kingdom that God has planned for those who love him. Our new life in Christ is designed by God to demonstrate the loving, joyful, thank-filled, happy, harmonious, and perfect experience that's awaiting all who embrace Jesus. We are to show that kind of life now. What we know to be coming is what we should be practicing now. We're the first fruits of that to a world that is in desperate need of that good and hopeful news. That there is harmony and love available through Christ. So we are to be loving, kind, and good to each other as we live in harmony with all those around us. We should exercise all the attitudes and actions that Jesus and his apostles teach in the New Testament. How do we do this? Well, I've got two ideas, and we'll close with these. Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40, Jesus identifies the first. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. What is Jesus saying? Love is what Jesus is saying. Love God and love people. So, to be a first fruit, to help people see what's coming, to be hope for the dark world around us, we need to be loving people. First of all, loving God, and then loving each other. We love because, it says in 1 John 4.19, He first loved us. That's why we can love. That's why I can love you and you can love me, because God loves us. That's why we can love God also. So let me ask you some simple questions to help you be more loving. What is the best way that I can love God within the next hour? So before you get in your car to go home, what is the best thing that you can do to demonstrate your love for God? Here's an idea. Sing the last song like you mean it. Joyfully. Think about what you're singing. And rejoice in the truths therein. What is the best way I can love God within the next hour? How about the next day, the next 24 hours, the next month? What's the best way that you can love God in the next month of your life, next year, next decade? These are questions you should ask yourself if you're going to be a first fruit to the world around you. How about loving people? Here's some more simple questions. What's the best way I can love people within the next hour? Maybe a warm handshake. You know, maybe a few more, for you more aggressive people, a hug. A kind word. Um, a prayer, maybe. Offer to pray with somebody in the lobby even. Crazy thing, pray in the lobby of a church. How about the next day? What's the most loving thing you can do in the next day, the next 24 hours? Maybe send an email or a phone call or a visit. How about the next month, year, decade? 
What's the best way you can love people? Jesus said the most important thing is to love God and love people. If we're going to be the first fruits, how are we going to do it? The next idea that I have for you is to become like Jesus in the area of giving. You know, Jesus was a giver. And this isn't a plea for more money for the church, so relax. You know, if you listened to Rick Lyon a couple weeks ago, he let you know that we're in great shape financially as a church, thanks to your loving and giving reflection of God's goodness to you. So this isn't a plea for money, so just relax, all right? <laughs> but Jesus is a giver. And we are told by Paul in Romans 8, 29, that God has predestined us to become like Jesus, to become a loving, giving person. Let me ask some simple questions. What's the best way that I can give within the next hour, the next day, the next month or year or decade? Are you serving people? Are you giving of your time and your resources? Are you actually serving and loving people? Are you giving from yourself to them? So that you have some ideas in case you can't come up with any, we provide opportunities for you to love and give regularly at this church. On December 15th, we're going to go to Othello to pass out gifts to people who don't have as much as we do. That's going to be their Christmas. And we're going to work with Josh and Sarah Ryan, our missionaries up there, and we're going to assist them to love and give like Jesus. Maybe you can go with us. It's a Saturday. Uh, Christmas Eve service, we're going to, as a church, Sun Valley Church is going to host an evangelistic Christmas Eve service at Camp Hope, which is behind the old Kmart, where Yakima's homeless live. And we're going to take stockings to them with simple things that they could use, like a hat and gloves and a bag of potato chips. We're going to teach them from scriptures about Jesus, invite them to be saved, to be brought forth by a good God, and then we're going to go home to our own celebration. So, Christmas Eve, we're going to be here at 5.30. At 7, we're going to all go over there, whoever wants to go. I'd love all of you to go and help us there. And, we're going to, and here's the thing, we're going to keep the service to a half an hour over there. Here's another idea. Serve your neighbors. Invite them to one of our Christmas services. We have a few, at least three. Give a copy of the Gospel of John with your gift at Christmas to your neighbors or your friends. We have copies of John. I think we just ordered a bunch of them. I don't know if they're here yet or not, but we got a ton of them that are coming. Simple paperback Gospel of John. Put it in or on the gift that you give to your neighbors. That big batch of cookies you make. Gospel of John, invitation to church. And you are being a first fruit to your neighbor. We have a good God, don't we? Amen. Let's thank him together. God, we lift up our hearts in thanksgiving. Thanksgiving to your goodness. 
goodness towards us and all the gifts that you give. I pray that, that the person in this room who has yet to submit themselves to your goodness demonstrated in Christ Jesus, I pray that you, Holy Spirit, would bring them forth by the word of truth that they have heard this morning and cause new life, new created life to overtake their soul at this moment. That they would submit to and run to this good God, our Savior Jesus Christ, who demonstrated his goodness by coming here and dying for our sin and rising again from the grave to bring us this good news, to bring newness of life for those of us who desperately need it. God, I pray that we would also be the first fruits to those around us, to this dark world who doesn't believe that you're good, God, who doesn't understand your goodness. God, help us be the first fruits to them, to our neighbors, our family members, our friends and co-workers, our classmates who don't know you. God, may this be the Christmas season where we see many come to embrace this good God that we love and serve. And we pray in Jesus' name, who is our great and good Savior. Amen.